This is actually an interesting circumstance, because this isn't a bad episode, I just don't like it. <laughs> you know, coffee, I guess. It's actually funny, this is done by Robert Hewitt Wolf. and it kind of feels like it. He's a good writer, he knows what he's doing. It was mostly done by him basically by coincidence, because everyone else is working on something else, including failing at making Prodigal Daughter actually work. Now, I, I, I want to talk about something else later, so let's just go ahead and jump into the episode. So first we see Lieutenant Hector. <laughs> yes, I know Hector's his first name. I didn't write down his last name. Lieutenant Hector, yes. I am this great person who has piloted the Defiant in combat, and it's been wonderful and amazing, and I'm super dead. I find it interesting that we once again have a another war character. You know, another basically one-off character as a part of fleshing out the war. In fact, one of the things I like about this, and this is uh, something I enjoy in general, is the idea that he effectively a red shirt will die in this episode and the episode will actually make a decent amount of a deal about it now then two other people die as well but still the fact that they actually bothered to characterize this guy it's a nice touch i do feel it's a bit sh <laughs> silly how far they try to emphasize how how do i phrase this <sighs> one of the problems that tends to happen in star trek is the main cast tends to come come across as a click because they kind of are. Now that makes sense. They're all friends. They all know each other. And they also know what each other can do professionally. So ignoring their own personal biases on the matter, you know, they know what Kira can do. They know what O'Brien can do. They know what Bashir can do. Their, their talents and skills are well known and acknowledged by the whole group. So they can work as a team. That makes sense. But this episode doesn't help. Because <laughs> this kid's like, yay, can I, can I hang out with you guys? No. Oh, okay. Well then, yay, let's go ahead and have a good night, yay, to, to the fire things. Oh, is it time to go home? Yeah, it's been time to go home for an hour. Why didn't you say something an hour ago then? And then, of course, he very awkwardly flirts at Esri. I'm going to blame him. And then he dies. <laughs> yay, he's dead. Which is funny, because most of the other one-off war characters are also dead, aren't they? Except for Reese. He was okay. So we find out that he was killed by a projectile weapon. Now I want you to pay attention to something, because they make a specific reference to the fact that there should be gunpowder there, and there isn't. Now that's relevant because that means it's a gunpowder weapon. Now that's relevant because a gunpowder weapon is freaking loud. This is, I know this sounds like a weird thing to pick up on, but this is probably the single biggest flaw of the entire episode. It's a gun, like by our modern standards of gun. In fact, it's a rifle, which shoots a bullet via a gunpowder explosion. That's going to make a hell of a noise. In fact, we do kind of hear it towards the end of the episode, and we also already know, thanks to multiple episodes, that Deep Space Nine's bulkheads are not exactly soundproofed. Now, I point this out because this kind of makes the entire episode fall apart. They're like, oh my god, we have no leads. He's completely untraceable. There's no way to find him. No way to detect him other than to listen to the gunshot. Now, I know that's not exactly helpful, but God's sakes, you can literally set up audio sensors from a computer, right? And if you can't, you got Ferengi on board. No one even mentions the idea of trying to listen for the gunshot in order to find this guy. Anyways... Ignoring that massive flaw with the, with the, the episode and the premise, we also see that it's a 
It's a gunpowder shot that shoots at short range. Now that's a bit of a... Huh, to begin with. But what's also interesting is they go ahead and identify this thing, the TR-118. Now, or excuse me, 116. Now, what's funny is Cisco identifies this thing by memory. I didn't realize that Cisco is that much of an aficionado. Now, the implication in the episode is that this is a recent thing. This gun, this rifle, was introduced relatively recently, probably in direct relation to the Dominion hostilities or the Dominion War. Okay, that makes sense. And they mentioned the regenerating phasers instead, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, never actually come up again in the show. Although some games and books actually do something with the regenerating phaser idea. Pro tip, didn't work on the Borg. Anyways, so that makes a degree of sense, and I'm willing to forgive Cisco for knowing this off the top of his head. Because of the, the idea that, you know, this is a recent thing, and he was probably at least partially involved in it. I mean defiant, right? The thing that's interesting about it, though, is that it's just a rifle at that point. Nothing else. And at that point, all it is is a gun that you can use when you can't use your phaser. Which, okay, that's neat, but not really all that useful. But you know what makes it a lot more useful? The things that O'Brien adds to it. So we have the ability to shoot a bullet, teleport it to another location, and then have it hit someone. And, thanks to our scanners, we can literally target things through walls. I want you to really think for a second about how ludicrously deadly this weapon is. Ignoring the obvious sound problem I just mentioned, this is a gun that can shoot through walls at long range. With, with all of the impact as if the bullet had just gone right here. That's an armor-piercing bullet, too, by the way. So... That's nuts. That's actually insane. Don't worry, it'll never be mentioned again. As I've mentioned before, I feel like Season 7, while there's definitely some hallmarks, I don't feel it lives up to the quality of Season 6, with a few notable exceptions. I mean, Only a Paper Moon was just knocked it completely out of the park. But Season 7, well, I'm going to go ahead and give a theory here. I think this is a good time to mention this. I mentioned how the chains were loosened a little bit for Season 7, and one of the ideas was mentioned, you know, get all the story ideas out, you know, whatever you want to talk about. I feel that Season 7 of Deep Space Nine is a good example of the benefits and flaws of unrestrained creativity. This, sometimes I call this the Nintendo problem. Because what you get when you have creative people who are just designing creative works without, you know, proper management or restrictions, good or bad, is you get... Some really good, and some kind of eh, and then you get some kind of eh. You tend to not get very bad when it comes to this kind of thing, but you definitely get the eh, because what you tend to get is things that just didn't work. They were either overambitious, or they had a concept that they really loved and they just couldn't make work. None of this is intended to be an insult, by the way. I understand. I'm just saying, I, I had this theory of walking in, I didn't want to share the theory until you know I started seeing more episodes, but I think I could fairly safely say... This is definitely Season 7. They were throwing things out, and some of them worked, and some of them didn't. And I feel like this is definitely one of the didn't, by the way. Because uh, there's this lengthy dream sequence. And it's like, oh my god, oh, you were the killer, and oh, it's Joran, 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 wake up. 
What was the point of that? I'm just curious. Now, you could say the point was to introduce Joran to the story. Okay, that's valid. I, I'm, I'm with that. It's a little long for that, but I'm with that. Then Joran enters the story. Actually, that's not true. What happens next... Uh, no, apparently that is actually the next thing that happens. No, I'm wrong. Right before that, she's wandering alone in the dark trying to figure out what's going on. And for some reason, and I think this is the only time ever we see Deep Space Nine like this, unless it's a dream sequence or it's Impact uh, Noir, and it's like everything's dark, and there's this bump in the distance, and oh my god, what's going on? Oh, it's Worf. What? Notice that she said rather loudly several times, Hello, is that you, Quark? And Worf was just saying silent. Now, I can forgive that, because Worf was probably making sure that no one else was following her. And I do like the idea that he's kind of trying to make sure she's okay, but at the same time, he probably should have done something other than slowly creeped out at her from the shadows. And come on, Worf. Then she pulls Joran out, and Joran pushes her to be evil. You should do evil things. And this is the point of the episode, that Joran is tempting her, seducing her, is actually the word I want to use, to the dark side of being a murderer. Why? I'm sorry. I know that sounds like a strange thing to bring up, but I don't buy that for Ezri or Jadzia. The entire idea is that Joran is trying to slowly get her into this, and the episode portrays it as if Ezri is barely restraining him. It's taking all her effort, and, and she's losing her calm, and she's losing her, her professionality, and it's just bothering her so much because she just wants to kill so badly, and I just don't buy it for a millisecond. I mean, everything we've seen about Ezri so far, granted, not that much, has not even begun to indicate anything even remotely in this direction. See, here's the problem if I might be so bold. Believe it or not, I know, crazy thought, normal people don't like killing. It's just such a strange concept, right? Unless you actually look into how much work has been done historically to psychologically separate soldiers from the act of killing because it affects them so badly. That's a real thing, by the way. You can look it up. Have fun. Don't do it. It's really depressing. <laughs> people don't like killing. It's actually not in our nature, to be completely blunt. Not psychologically, not mentally, not emotionally. We can't handle it. One of my favorite aspects of this... By the way, that's real life. Never Now, when life is horrible and awful. Imagine in the future, idealized Federation. Now I know she's a trail, not a human, but still. I want you to remember the episode... Uh, oh, God. Was it, was it Monument? Edifice? It's the episode in Voyager where there's this landmark, and the landmark is like, hey, you know, I'm going to beam these thoughts of being a horrible, brutal killer into your mind. Now, as much as that episode pisses me off, and it does, one of the things it does really, really well is it portrays just how much this drastically, violently affects most of the main crew. They can't process it. They literally can't process it. It effectively drives them insane. Not crazy, not nuts or mad, actually insane. Why? Because someone like Harry Kim is not a killer. Right? Because we don't like killing. And it got across that point very well. It's one of the reasons I keep referring to it, even though I can't think of the name of it. Oh, it's going to bug me. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> one second. 
Voyager Monument episode. No, Voyager. Oh my god, did you... You missed Voyager. Memorial. I keep saying Monument. It was Memorial, Season 6, Episode 14. An otherwise good episode. Or I'm saying that wrong. Actually, an otherwise bad episode. But they do get that point very, very well. So you're telling me that Esri, who's a Trill, who's of the Federation, who's a Shrink, can just barely hold herself back from horribly murdering people. She's just so... Give me a freaking break. See, if it was just disgusting her, or the very thought was affecting her in a similar way to the Harry Kim example I just gave, sure, that makes sense. It, it would it'd get across the idea that she's just so bothered by this, but she's willing to put up with it in order to get the thing. Instead, it's more like she's so concerned of being tempted. It's basically a straight-up dark side allegory. This might as well be Star Wars. Give in to the dark side, Ezri. Pull the trigger, and you will know what it feels like to be the killer. No, I refuse! There wasn't even a bullet in the cartridge, Ezri. I mean, come on. So I don't buy it, and that's the problem. The reason I'm hammering this point so much is this is the central point of the episode. This is the last Esri episode, by the way. She will feature heavily in future episodes, but this is the last Esri episode. And this is what they give her. Her trying to resist the dark side of being a murderer. What's funny is they've already covered the Joran thing. It, twice, actually, if you're paying attention. <laughs> so... It's kind of redundant in general, in addition to the, the fact that it doesn't quite work. <sighs> that being said, I do want to give huge praise to the editing department and the recording department. Basically, they, they do a really good job of simulating what it would look like to have the, the X-ray targeting. It's basically a holographic representation of what she's looking at. Effectively, what they have is they have a camera, and they're just and they're doing smart edits in between the shots. So they'll be like, right up to the wall, and they'll move to the next set, and they go, you know. Very smart, very well done, and I want to give special praise to that, because it's actually very creative and very awesome. I know that's a weird thing to praise, but it's good editing, damn it. <laughs> so, I'm looking at my notes here. I have a note that says, at this point, you know, pull the trigger, dun, dun, dun. why is this affecting her? Then I have a couple other notes about, you know, why does she stab, why does she nearly stab this guy? And I have another note immediately after that that says, why is this affecting her? <laughs> what? And then she decides to go and put Joran back in her mind or belly or whatever. And um, for some strange reason, it gets interrupted, which kind of stops it. One of the people involved in making this episode actually called this Trill Mumbo Jumbo. I think I agree. And this is definitely some serious mumbo-jumbo. I know, they originally weren't going to do that. They were going to do a hologram thing. But seriously? So, of course, we find out, of course, it has to be a killer that hates laughter. And first thought, it's got to be a Vulcan. It can't be anything else. It must be a Vulcan. Now, they end up being right on this. But really? That's your supposition? <laughs> okay. So, then, they say, we need to have proof before we take this to Odo. No, you don't. You need to go to Oda with your suspicions right now so he, the actual trained detective and investigator, can start investigating the Vulcans on the station. So they do some good camera editing. Yay, that's some nice stuff. 
And uh, there's this nice bit where it is admittedly a nice scene where this one Vulcan, very chill, chilling looking Vulcan, walks into the turbo lift. And Joran just kind of looks him up and he's like, no, it's him. It's him. Look into his eyes. Joran, how are you looking into his eyes if she is not? You're not there. You're in her mind. Oh, I'm not supposed to bring that up. I'm telling you, this episode just has a lot of weird flaws in it. Like little things like that that just bother me. Or how about the fact that Esri actually goes out of her way to say, What are you doing? Keeping in mind she's alone in the turbulent other than the Vulcan. So she just said to the Vulcan, What are you doing? Is she really that out of it? I mean, is it really getting to her that badly? Then, I want to remind you, right before this, she said, Okay, we've narrowed it down, then we need to go to Odo. Then he walks in, and Joran's like, I'm totally sure it's him. And then he walks out, and she says, now we need to go get more proof before we get to Odo. Why? This would be an excellent time to be like, Captain, I think it's this exact person. He just left Turbolift such and such with me. Could you could you ping Odo and have a look have him look into this? I'm pretty sure that as the trained psychologist who is specifically in on the job of finding out who this killer is, they'd probably listen to you. But no, she's got to do it so she can be tempted one last time, and she's got the gun on him. <sighs> Okay, credit where credit is due. Once again, the X-ray vision thing is nice. And there's actually a wonderful moment, which is surprisingly chilling, where he picks up the gun and starts rotating over. And as he looks over, there's this moment of, huh, because now he sees that she's looking at him with the same gun. It's a nice little moment. So then, they sh so then she shoots him. It's okay. She doesn't shoot him to kill. Now, I'll have one last thing to complain about, and then I want to talk about the Vulcan thing, because what she does is she runs over, she pulls the gun from him, why, why did you do it? You know, pulls the gun and he's like, do it, kill him, kill him. The tension, the tension, the music. And then she says, no, I won't kill him. I'll never join you. I am a Jedi like my father before me. And then she calls for the medibay. And pay attention to the music in that scene. It all of a sudden plays the light relief. Ah, the conflict is over. Now I point that out because it posits the idea that Ezri was seriously considering murdering this man in cold blood. I don't buy it. Which brings me to the Vulcan thing. Last thing I want to talk about. So, I know some people who are upset that this is a Vulcan. <sighs> Mostly because the Vulcans basically aren't in Deep Space Nine. Like, there are extremely few Vulcans. I can name three off the top of my head. And two of them were bad. Like, one was a jackass and one's a murderer. The third one was alright. She was cool. I'm sure there's other Vulcans, but those are the only three I can think of. So, the point is, if you think of it statistically, you could see, yeah, they weren't really pro-Vulcan. But um, the funny thing is, the only reason it was a Vulcan in lore, or out of lore, excuse me, out of character, is because of the fact that they thought it, they wanted it to be something that people couldn't guess. I mean, you never suspect a Vulcan, right? So they picked the thing you would least suspect. A Vulcan did it! Dun, dun, dun. Now, <laughs> whether that's a sub substantial reason or not is up to you. But it makes perfect sense to me. No, seriously. We already know that Vulcan brains are basically surgical for good and bad. And we've seen in several episodes across all the shows at this point uh, that the Vulcan mind can basically do things to itself under the wrong circumstances. This happened to Tuvok. Uh, this arguably happened to Sarek. I'm pretty sure this happened to Spock, too. Uh, in fact, I think it was Spock's brain where that happened, but let's not get into that. To me, the idea of the Dominion War being so devastating 
and so overwhelming to, like I said, in a way that no other war ever has been in Federation history. Possibly in Vulcan history. We go all the way back to the time of Troubles and the time of separation. Um, th this is a truly monumentally horrific war of such catastrophic impact. I like the idea, as horrible as it sounds, of a Vulcan mind basically dissecting itself. Getting to the point where it has to make sense. Logically speaking, this makes sense. And if we presume logically that all my friends and comrades died for a reason, then there has to be a related, a correlating calculation, an equation there. There has to be some logic behind why they died. Maybe if we can sit down and think about it and just imagine a Vulcan trying to process in his or her mind the why it happened and trying to logic out a reason why all those sufferings and why all those killings happened. And then coming to the obviously flawed idea of, well, it just makes sense because obviously they were just too, their, their emotions, their, their emotions, their laughter, it was too stuck. It was too adamant. And that was what was being utilized as a way of, and just, you could see how the mind would just break down and literally stop working correctly. Insane, in short, but a Vulcan kind of insane. The kind of insane where you're calculating everything very carefully, but your variables are off, or even your equations are off, your entire equations. I admit that idea actually appealed to me, and it's one of the better parts of the episode, in my opinion. Especially since it helps to exemplify the nature of war. It's actually all I've got for this one. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, and I'll see you next time, right after I give in to the dark side. <laughs> Can't even do it with a straight face.